Good morning. That's not bad for a 16, 17-year-old kid leading worship, is it? Uh, <clears throat> By the way, you guys were clapping for Mel Melvin like he's, like he's beautiful or something. What about his wife? His wife's the better looking of the group. Where's, where's Don at? Don, where are you at? Hey, Miss Don. Good to see you, Miss Don. You're a lot better looking than your husband is. Can you sing better than he can? That's a lot. Happy New Year. Lots of great things we're expecting for this year. I hope that you are as well. I don't know what kind of New Year's resolutions that you made this past year, but hopefully there were some that included your relationship with Jesus. I've noticed that some of you have put online, and I don't know how valuable or viable that is. Sometimes people put things online and they just put it online so that other people can see it. Do you ever do that? But I noticed that lots of people have put on, listen, will you read the Bible with me through, through uh, this next year? And let me tell you, anything that you do for spiritual growth and growing in your relationship with the Lord is positive. That's a good thing, correct? Amen. Um, so anyway, um, we're going to go back to schedule next week. So back to two services next, next Sunday. Things get, get kicked off here this next Wednesday. And so uh, we'll be looking for that um, as we move into this new year. Let's get back to where we were before we began the Advent season. Why don't you turn into the book of Romans. Uh, we left off at chapter 6. We're going to be beginning in chapter 7 today. We're going to take the first six verses and we're going to walk through that today. Um, but up until this point, Paul has said an awful lot of really important stuff in his letter. If you remember sort of reviewing just a little bit with you, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome to the believers there at Rome, a place that he had never been, but he intended to go. So he writes this letter to them based on things that he had heard, because um, he had heard about their faith. And Paul says some pretty incredible things up front, <laughs> like, like we all are sinners, and that we all fall short, and that, that all of us deserve God's wrath and his judgment. And yet he would come back and say, but God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still in sin, Christ gave his life. He demonstrated his love for us. Um, and that's incredible. And that love, our salvation is something, isn't it? It isn't available just for a few, but it's available for all who are willing to trust Christ. Amen? All of us. Every person has that access, that availability. It just comes from trusting Christ, giving our life to him. Paul would go on to say that as believers and followers of Christ, that we've not just been saved from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. Now, let me ask this question. How many married couples do we have in here today? Raise your hand, please. Okay. Maybe you can identify with me then when I, I say this. I don't know about you guys, but when, when Meredith and I got married, there were an awful lot of stuff that we just didn't understand. Okay. Are you with me? Boy, I sure was good looking back then, wasn't I? <clears throat> but anyway, but anyway, I want you to think about this. I mean, we, I don't know about you guys, but going into marriage, I mean, there were things that we thought that we knew, but we really didn't have a clue about. But what we did know was what that we had learned biblically and also culturally. I was raised in a home where marriage was valued, and we, we had this thought process of till death do part. My parents had been married up until at that time when Meredith and I got married over 30 years. My grandparents had been married for over 50 years, and it was the same. It was the same with Meredith. And so we went into this, to this marriage relationship. Listen. 
um, till death do part. Um, and I don't, I don't really know about you, but it wasn't very long after I, we said I do that our relationship with one another was tested. You guys the same way? See, now some of y'all got, got perfect stuff going on. See, now Meredith's not here. She's listening online so I can talk about this and I only get it when I get to the house. But I, I just, I remember thinking about, I mean, there's some things I can laugh about now, but at that moment in time, they, they, they just weren't laughable. I mean, they weren't funny. Matter of fact, they were pretty serious. There have been times in our relationship when she looked at me and go, I don't want to be here. And I'm there to times in our, our relationship, I would look at her and go, Meredith, I don't want to be here. Only by God's grace. But we've learned an awful lot over, over these, these years. And I tell you that because what we're going to see today in Romans chapter 7, Paul's going to give us a little bit of an illustration relating to marriage, an illustration of marriage that describes our relationship with the law, actually marriage and remarriage. And Paul is writing and using this illustration because he knew that it would be something that those that he was writing to would, under, had under, would understand. And so Paul, as he opens up here in chapter 7, this is what, this is what he begins with as he, as he starts here in chapter 7. Read along with me uh, this, this morning. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is Living. So Paul's referring back to some things that he's already talked to up until this point. But simply put, here it is. This is it. That the law is only binding and effective as long as we are living. That when we die, we're freed from the law. But which law is Paul referring to? Is he talking about the ceremonial law, the laws surrounding worship? Is he talking about the civil law, the laws that surrounding their interactions with one another? Or is he talking about the law of Moses? Well, in the New Testament, throughout the scriptures, we find different illustrations or different thought patterns or pictures that are painted of the law. One of those is, is what would be called the yoke. You write that down this morning. One of the illustrations we see that describing the law was a yoke. If you know anything about farming, maybe you're familiar with a yoke. A yoke was, it was a wooden piece or some type of a piece that was placed upon the backs of two animals to help in, in plowing. Uh, it was a cross piece that was fastened over their necks. Um, and that it would help control the livestock so they would move in, in unison. And in Galatians chapter 1, this is what Paul had to say when he was writing. So Christ has truly set us free. He set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and that you don't get tied up again in the slavery of the law. Now this is really important because... If you remember, in reference to salvation, there were those that said that salvation, the Jews early on said that salvation was by what? Obedience to what? The law. Circumcision. Paul and Barnabas had been sent out to the church to be missionaries. They sent out taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And as they went out, they took the gospel itself, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But there were those that followed up behind them that, that said, hey, listen, we understand what Paul and Barnabas are teaching you and telling you, but I just want you to know that it's not just salvation by grace through faith, but it's also salvation by obedience to the law and through circumcision. And so it caused this stir. And so Paul and Barnabas ended up going back to Jerusalem to the council and they would have a discussion with the religious leaders. And in the midst of that and talking about it, the, in that conversation, um, the, the same guy that denied that denied Christ before he was crucified, before he was resurrected, Peter 
stands up in the midst of this conversation that was going on because there were those that were saying, well, listen, you've got to do this, this, and this to be saved. It's just not by grace. And Peter, the, who is now a leader in the early church, Peter stands up and he says this in Acts 15.10. Why are you trying to put a yoke or a teaching on them that, that we ourselves nor the people that have come before us are able, have been able to bear? Why in the world are you doing that? And there are those people that say today that, well, you know, man is just basically good, that we're born good, that there we're just a product of our environment. Maybe, uh, maybe you've, you've struggled, and so people would say that the reason you're struggling is because the people around you, maybe because your parents made you do it, or your brothers or sisters have made you maybe do it. it may have, you've just been dealt a bad, a, a bad hand of cards. That the problems are the result of the influence of those around you. Maybe it was the school that you were raised in. Um, maybe it was the people you hung out with. But even though there might be some merit or some, some thoughts around that that are true, the Bible, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says the heart of man is deceitful above all things beyond cure. That all of us are sinners by nature and by choice before there's ever any outside influence. So, so when there isn't a law present, I want you to hear this, what we have a tendency to do is to create our own laws, to create our own rules. And this is the same thing with plowing the field. The yoke was needed to provide direction, to provide control. See, I, I'm old enough to remember the, the times of, of grandpa hooking up the, the ox or the cows to plow the fields. And I remember what it was like when plowing would one, and it would be like this, but he would put the yoke upon them so they would plow straight. Can you, can you imagine what the world we live in would be like if there were no rules, no speed limits? Can you imagine the chaos? And some of you guys would go, well, that's, that would be just great. You know, no more speeding tickets. Well, that would be all right until all of a sudden something impacted your life. So the law acts as a yoke to constrain or control lawlessness. And that's an illustration that we find in the scriptures in reference to the law. But we also see another picture that's painted. The law is pictured as a, a guardian or a tutor. And it was the Apostle Paul. I want you to take your, your Bibles, turn over to the book of Galatians just for a second. Let me show you another illustration here in reference to a guardian or tutor. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. This is what Paul said. The law was our guardian until Christ came. That guardian or tutor was used to point us to Christ. Paul's using an illustration that those that would have been Roman of Roman descent, those that were Greeks would have understood because it wouldn't, wouldn't have been unusual for them to have a tutor or a guardian in the house to help train or tutor their children to give instruction until they came of a certain age and they didn't need them any longer. Going back to the children of God, I want you just to think about this for a second. So, so here's God's children. He rescues them out of, out of Egypt, out of the hands of the Egyptians. He brings them into the promised land. And here they are like babes, immature children. And so what God did is he provided for them a tutor. He provided for them a law to give guidance and direction. Look at what he says in Galatians chapter 3, 24 and following. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And then he says in verse 25, And now that the way of faith has come, 
we no longer need the law as a guardian. Move over just one chapter to chapter 4 in Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and look at what Paul went on to say. But when the right time came, God sent his son, Jesus, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him, Jesus, to buy what? Freedom. Freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us into his, as his very own children. And then I love verse 6. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, those of you that have been in a discipleship group with me, you should have that verse memorized. I ought to call some of you out and have you stand up and memorize and just recite it for us, but I'm not going to do that today. But here we are. Because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that, that, that um, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. So simplifying this, it means that instead of being immature and needing a tutor or a schoolmaster standing over us and telling us what to do and what not to do, because of who Jesus was and what he did for us, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that we don't need that any longer because of our devotion to Christ and our love towards him. So here we are in chapter 7. Paul's writing to the believers at Rome, those who would have known the law, and he says, I don't, I, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? In other words, the law is applicable to when a, when a, is only applicable when a person is alive. And this isn't just regarding the law of Moses, but any law. I mean, when's the last time you've seen a dead person get a speeding ticket? <laughs> Doesn't work that way. But here he's got the picture of, a, of the law as a yoke, and we also see the picture of a, of, a, of a tutor or a guardian. But here's the one that Paul's talking about now in reference to marriage. Look at verses 2 and 3. For example, <clears throat> when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer, no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. Now we know that the Bible teaches us that God designed marriage for a lifetime till death do part. But here we have this illustration Paul's going to use in marriage. And I think that we would all agree that um, things are a whole lot different today than what they were back then when it comes, comes to marriage. Till death do part is what God said. But how many times do we want to leave the door these days open uh, just in case? Um, when, you, when you think about marriage and you think about being committed, you know, we're committed these days as long as, as things work out. But all of a sudden when they don't work out, we just want to, we want to move on out and move to another direction. But the Bible says, and Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate, that the two shall become one. It's like taking two pieces of paper that represent a man and a woman who commit themselves to one another to get married. It's like gluing those two pieces of, of paper together. And I don't know if you've ever done that before, but once you glue those two pieces of paper together, it's very difficult to unglue what has been glued. Are you with me? I mean, have you ever sealed up a letter and tried to open that letter? And then, then you've got to turn around and you've got to get another envelope because you just seem to tear it all to pieces. It's impossible to unglue what has been glued without causing great, great damage. Some people view marriage as 
as uh, our divorce as, as a way to freedom. But let me just say this in reference to freedom, that there's always a price to pay for freedom. The illustration that Paul gives is that the wife is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But when she dies, she is free. The law has bound her, but death has freed her. And here's Paul trying to illustrate a principle, not from an emotional perspective, but from the legalities. That in marriage, when a man and woman commit themselves to one another, it's for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, till death do part. Now, early on in Jesus, the children of Israel, I want you to notice this. Having been united or wedded to the law of Moses, it was like the law dictated and governed the children of Israel. But now that Jesus had come, <laughs> he had died on the cross, he had been resurrected. This is what Paul had to say in verse 4. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. So back in verse 2, he talks about the husband dying, the wife being free. Now here he talks about the wife being the one who dies. You notice what he says, you being the wife. You died to the power of the law. But the point's the same, the obligations to the law are over and done with. Death ends the obligations to the law. And just as death would terminate marriage, death also terminates our relationship to the law of Moses. Jesus' death, what it did, it secured our release from us being married to the law and us being remarried to Jesus. That on the cross, the price was paid. That as believers that we shared in Christ's death. When we come to place our faith in Christ, we choose to follow Him, there's a death that takes place, but it's a death to self. When we unite ourselves with Christ, we're raised to walk in a new life, a new status, a new power, and a new security. And Paul said this when writing to the believers at Galatia, he said, I am crucified with Christ, I though no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself, loved me and gave himself for me. So the law, once that I lived up under, that was a yoke and a burden, it isn't any longer. Because the law, listen, <laughs> the law was designed by God to be temporary, not permanent. Temporary. Look over at the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament with me just for a second, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 33. As you're turning there. So here's God looking over the nation of Israel. I mean, he had given them the law to begin with. And this is what our Heavenly Father said in Jeremiah chapter 33. There is a day that's coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the one that I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand and I brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I, though I love them as a husband loves a wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. In those days, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on where? On the hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So in trusting Christ, there's a death that takes place. For those of us that are believers in this room... There's a death that takes place. 
There's a death that takes place within ourselves. And here's Paul, after that death, he's drawing out this freedom that we have from the law to remarry. But this time, to marry to Jesus. Wow. Look at what he says at the end of verse 4. Now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. No longer is, is this, am I committed to this over here because I'm dead. It's over and done with. But now I have the opportunity to remarry and realign myself with Christ. In other words, being dead to the law, we're free to remarry. It's like Jesus takes us to the altar and he says, I, Jesus, take, take the sinner for better, for worse, in faithfulness and unfaithfulness for all eternity. And in turn, we respond, I, Sidney, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior, to have and to hold from this day forward throughout all eternity. We even take his name, Christian, to be named after Jesus himself. So you got the picture of the bride and the bridegroom, which are incredible metaphors, but they're not the only metaphors that we see in the scripture when it comes to our relationship with God. Christ is called the head, we're called the body of Christ. He's called the shepherd, we're called the what? The sheep. He's the commanding officer, we're the army of God. But here's the idea. Here's the idea. We are the bride of Christ, and he himself is our husband. And if you think about it from that perspective, just can, as there can be adultery in a marriage relationship, there can also be spiritual adultery where something else takes first. So we got the illustration that Paul shares about, about marriage, a man and a wife in marriage. And I say a man and a wife because that's what the scripture teaches. Amen? That's what it teaches. That's what we have to hold on to. But here's the application. When we come to trust Christ, not only are we dead to the law, but we, come, we become united with Christ. Now, I want to give you three things as we, as we sort of move towards the end today that I think are really important to us. Three things that I want you to be able to write down with the number one being relationship over ritual. Looking back at, at verse four, Paul's re referring to this being united or being married to another. <clears throat> Do you understand that God is more interested in a relationship with us than he is the, the rituals that we perform? Amen? God is more interested, let me say that again, in, the, in a relationship with us than he is the rituals that we, that we perform. I mean, sometimes it's almost like I, th I think that there's this thought that maybe God's up in heaven and he's got a clipboard and he's got these, these things and we get a point for everything that we, every time we do something spiritual. Are you with me? You know, I, I, get, a, I get a point for going to church and I get a point for, for serving and I get, a, I get a point for giving and, and the more points that I get, the more God loves me. Can, can, I, can I give you a truth that's really important today that you need to hear and you need to hear this? God loves you, period. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how re religious you may be or you think you are, but I want you to know this. God loves you, period. And he desires a relationship with you, just not the rituals that you perform. The book of Isaiah talks about the children of God doing all these religious things, saying prayers, going to the temple, and the outward external was full of obedience, yet their hearts were far, far from him. Here they were going through the motions of, of ritual, and yet there was no relationship. 
We find in the book of Joel where we see people tearing their clothes over remorse of sin, and yet it was God that said, may it, may it be our hearts that are torn, not just our clothes. And God said, return to me. Return to me. In the Old Testament book of Micah, we see where it's written there in Micah chapter 6, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, in other words, in reference to sacrifices, Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn to pay for my sins? No. 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 The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. Do what's right, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Did you hear that? This is what he wants from you, to do what's right, to, to love mercy and to, to walk humbly with your God. What, what is mercy? Withholding something from somebody that they deserve? Is there somebody right now in your life that you want to pay back evil for evil? I mean, somebody's wronged you and, and man, you just, you want to get back at them? What do you say do? Listen, if, 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 you, if you want to do, if, this is what I require. Do what's right. Love mercy, mercy, not vengeance, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. See, we talk about having a personal relationship with God, and we talk about it so many times in Christian circles that I think sometimes we lose the significance of what we're talking about, but that's exactly, that's exactly what he desires, a relationship a relationship with us. Tim Safford in his, in, his, in his book, Knowing the Face of God, he said this and I quote, I've come to believe that God's personality does crowd the world around me, even inside me. I believe that I can know him as the same faculties in many of the same ways that I know my friends. If the Bible carries one repeated message about God, it's that he wants to be known. He prefers relationship over ritual. It's true. He desires a relationship over ritual. Write this down. Fruit over formality. Fruit over formality. Look at what he says there at the end of verse 4 and 5. Back in Romans chapter 7. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead as a, matter, as a result. We can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature... Sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused those evil desires that produced the harvest of sinful disease, uh, deeds resulting in, in death. I, I remember early on in the days of, of heritage, we had an awful lot of discussions about polity, about government inside of the church because, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a big deal. It really is. And I, I, remember, I remember the conversations with uh, a man that was living at that time who was the who had just retired from the presidency of the Baptist Bible College and Seminary. And, and, and Milo had a, had a big influence in, 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 I think, the polity of the way we do things at Heritage. And because Heritage wasn't created to do church better. It wasn't, it wasn't began because we thought we were better and we could, you know, we could just make it happen. But Heritage was designed for, for us to do exactly what we're supposed to do. And that was carry out the Great Commission. That's exactly what we're created to do. 
Um, and it was, it was based on relationship over ritual. That was the priority. With the outcome being fruit, we wanted to be able to see fruit. You know, how do we carry out the mandate that Jesus gave the church that He gave us to go into the world and make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? To not just do church, but to be the church. And I'll always remember those conversations and how, how influential because Milo said, regardless of what you see around you, the polity of the church should help the church carry out the Great Commission itself. And that's how we've ended up with what we have. To help us not get caught up in all the politics and all the governing and all that kind of stuff, but to help us accomplish the Great Commission. You know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, the fruit is good. If a tree is bad, the fruit is bad. In my backyard, I have a pear tree. I have a pear tree. I know it's a pear tree, not because when I bought it 15 years ago, whenever it was, and I planted it, it had a sticker on it that said it was a sand pear tree. It was, I know it's a pear tree because every late summer, it produces something. You know what it produces? Oh, oranges. No, see. It produces pears. That's how I know that it's a pear tree. Not because of, of, of a sticker that was on it, but I know it's a pear tree because it produces pears. The fruit, the result of fruit. Think about our relationship with God. When if a tree is good, the fruit is good. If a tree is bad, the fruit is bad. Think about the fruit. In our relationship with God, there we should be bearing fruit. The word fruit in the Bible is a metaphor for productivity or consequences. And Jesus himself said this in John chapter 15. He said, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you remain in me, if you have a relationship with me, then the result of that will be the bearing of fruit in which God will be glorified. So we've got relationship over ritual. We've got fruit over formality. And here's, here's a third thought quickly today. Intimacy, loving intimacy over legalism. Intimacy, loving intimacy over legalism. Paul says in the beginning of verse 6, But now we have been released from the law, for we have died to it, and are no longer captive to its powers. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. I, I love what, um, I, I love this translation from the Living Bible has to say here in this passage in verse 6. But now you need no longer worry about the Jewish laws and customs because you died while in their captivity. And now you can really serve God, not in the old way, mechanically obeying a set of rules, but in a new way with all of your heart's in all of your minds. Wow. Loving intimacy over legalism. If we were to define legalism, we could say this. A doctrinal or belief system that emphasizes rules and regulations for both salvation and spiritual growth. That my standing with God isn't based on my works or my abilities. See, what the legalist does is they set a standard that not only that they can't attain, but they set a standard and impose those standards on other people. It's impossible. It's an attitude that not only damages relationships, it, 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 it hinders genuine friendships. 
but it also hinders our authenticity with the Lord. I mean, I mean, who in the world can, can live up to the expectations of the law? Parents? Think about that. How many times do we have expectations of our kids that we ourselves can't even bear? And we wonder sometimes why our kids rebel against us. Is there an expectation that you have of your children that you yourself struggle with? The law of Moses is full of do's and don'ts. You do this and you'll live. But the gospel says, look, if you live, then you will do this. Law of Moses, if you do this and this and this and don't do this and this, then you will live. The gospel says if you live, then you'll do this. Does that make sense? So the question is implied, how do we serve God? Look at what he says in verse 6. Now we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. So how do we serve the Lord? Do we serve the Lord out of a sense that somebody's looking over my shoulder so I've got to make sure I've got to do these certain things so that I can earn somebody's approval? So that I can be rewarded? Do we serve because the law requires it? If you are serving that way, it doesn't take long to become discouraged or disillusioned. To be overwhelmed. But Paul said no. He said, man, you're not up under that any longer. You're dead to that. You're dead to that. Now you're married to Christ. There's a relationship. There's something that's new. There's a new way of living in the spirit. And where the spirit is, there's a sense of joy. And there's a sense of excitement. Not because I have to, but because I get to. Man, I love to spend time with Troy, not because I have to. I like to spend time with Troy because I get to. I like to spend time with Brian, not because I have to. It's because I, I get to. I hope he likes to spend time with me. Now, Michael Hooks, that's a different story. But I want you to understand that. Man, it's not because we have to, it's because we get to, because there, there's a relationship. If you're struggling, if you're wrestling, is there something that's missing? I mean, if you're struggling to serve the Lord, maybe it's because you're not in the Spirit. Maybe it's because you're in the flesh. Maybe it's not because you're, you're in the new, but you're in the old. When we're in Christ, we want to live to please Him. There's an old saying. This is what it says. I do not work my soul to save. That work my Lord has done. But I will work like any, any slave for the love of God's dear son. And a relationship with God prompts us to do an awful lot of stuff that's out of the norm. It's amazing the distance we'll go, the things that we will do for the ones that we love. Amen? Not out of obligation, because we get to. Not because we have to. Are you still living up under the law? Are you dead? Have you been united with Christ? Are you still trying to earn that salvation? 
It's different. And all of a sudden you come to realize and you say no longer. I'm going to die to myself. Jesus, I want to, I'm going to serve you. I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to bow your heads today, please. I'm going to ask if Caleb and them would come up. While your heads are bowed, let me just, just ask a question. Um, you know, as we start off this new year, as, as we get prepared for this, for kicking things off, where do you find yourself at today? Is this going to be another year where you, where you just go on with the religious activities? Or is this going to be a year where you come to know Jesus intimately? What does that look like? Maybe you're here and you've just been functioning in the, in the ritual of religiosity. Scripture teaches, and we saw today, when we die to self, there's a new relationship. That's when we can marry ourselves to Christ. Until that time, until we die, we're still bound to the law. But once we die to self, then we can remarry, be, married, be married to Jesus and have a relationship with Him that's personal and intimate. And today, if you don't have that intimate relationship with Jesus, I just have to ask, as I always do, what is it that keeps you from making the most important decision of your life? There may be some of you here today that have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Man, we would love today for that to be the day that you raise your hand, that you stand and you say, I want to follow Jesus. Caleb and the team are going to sing. We're going to sing a a song Jesus paid it all just to remind us of the price that, that our freedom comes with a price and it came with the fact that Jesus would give his life. We're going to do something out of the ordinary today as we finish up. As they're singing this song, Bart, I see you back there. I know Jack is here. I know Jerry and any of our other overseers that are here. Sheila, I know that you're here. I don't know if you feel comfortable to come. I'd like for you guys to come and stand if you would here down front. We'll have some of our leaders that are here standing and, and um, maybe there's something you're wrestling with, you're struggling with. We would love to give you an opportunity to come. If you'd like to speak to one of these that are, that are here up front, you're, you're welcome to do that. Maybe you just want to come and pray. You can pray right there where you are. But we just want to have a time of invitation today. Is there something that's weighing on your heart? something that you're wrestling with that you just need to take before the Lord. It's what an invitation is. It's an invitation. The same invitation that Jesus gave his disciples 2,000 years ago is the same invitation that's offered to us. Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. <laughs> Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Didn't say anything about come follow me and Come perform all these religious rituals and get tied up in the, and bound up in all this law. That's not what he said. But he said, come follow me. Come hang out with me. Come walk with me. And your life will be changed. For those of you that may be here and don't have a relationship with Jesus, I encourage you to come today if that's you. For those of you that may be wrestling, 
Maybe you're praying about specific things for this coming year. You have the ability to come. You can kneel. You can talk to one of these that are standing here. But we invite you to come as well. And when we're done with this song, I'll close us out in a, in a word of prayer. But let me pray as we go into this time. Father, I'm just very thankful for the privilege of coming into this place as a body of believers to, to spend some time looking at your word. Thank you for the reminder today that, that, Father, that a relationship with you doesn't begin until something dies. There has to be a death. Thank you for the illustration that you give. Father, today, would you be with us in this time as we come? Thank you, Father, for hearing our, our voice. We turn this over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as Oh 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Cause Jesus paid it all, Crimson state, he washed it white as snow. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the privilege we have of walking into this new year, recognizing and knowing, oh Lord, you're God. Thank you for a church family. Thank you for a church family that is seeking to follow after you and obey you. Thank you for a church family that seeks to to do exactly what the church is supposed to do, to go into all the world and to preach and to teach and baptizing in your name, that we're caught up in not just trying to make our name known, but your name known, trying to keep the right priorities, first things first. Jesus, as we walk into this new year, I pray that at the center of our thoughts would be growing spiritually in a more intimate relationship with you. May we constantly be asking that question, Jesus, how do you want to use me today? Thank you, Father, for your love, for your mercy, for these that have come, the many that have come, for even those sitting in those seats today that said, Jesus, I love you. Be with us now as we walk out these doors today. Father, may you use us as your vessels, as your instruments of peace so that the Lord one day will have the privilege of looking back and just as Jesus said, a tree is identified by its fruit that God, because of our faithfulness, we will have borne much fruit that will have had an impact not only here, but far beyond. Thank you, Jesus, for the blessings we have. We take comfort in the fact of knowing that you are our Abba Father. Lead us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.